notice as you go through the next couple chapters, that is, I guess the best word is extremes. Um, Paul has ups and he has downs. He has victories and he has defeats. He's hailed as a god and then he's stoned almost to death. And it seems like life is sort of that way. Life is lived in extremes. There's one thing you can't say about life. It's not steady as she goes. It's more stormy as it blows rather than steady as it goes. And there's just no way you can get around that. You just can't plan your life to be non-eventful. You can't put it in autopilot and let it cruise along. It's just not going to work that way. The writer Solomon wrote in that book, Ecclesiastes, that famous text, there's a time to be born, there's a time to die. There's a time to plant and a time to pluck. Uh, we like the words born and plant, but not die and pluck. There's a time to tear down and there's a time to build up. There's a time for every purpose under heaven. And Paul, in one chapter, experiences highs and lows, these extremes, tearing down and then building up. One person said, life is a continual process of getting used to the things you never planned. I think that's true. You just get used to them by God's grace and finally say, Lord, I've made plans, but I now place them in your hands. You can upset them any way you want to because I don't have control over this thing that people call life. So you guide me. And I'll take my hands off the reins and I'll just let you do it. I read what Chuck Colson said, and I like Chuck. He said, life isn't a book. Life is not logical or sensible or orderly. And I thought of Paul in this chapter when he said that. He goes on and he says, life is a mess most of the time. And theology must be lived in the midst of that mess. Now, most of us who have worked with people have experiences in extreme because people can be like people in this chapter. One minute you're wonderful, the next minute you're a rat. And Paul experiences that in a number of places. Now, before we jump into this, I just want to remind you of what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. Of his life in general, he said, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the providence of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death, but this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not, I just read that, rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a great death, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. And again, in another place, He said, We have this treasure the gospel, in clay jars, our bodies, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. He says, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but never destroyed. Boy, that's great. 
he's talking about some of the experiences that we're going to read about tonight. Where he's down and then up and then down and then up. He wrote in the same letter that we just quoted from. He said that God is the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our tribulations so that we can be a comfort to those who are in any trouble by the same comfort that we have been comforted by God. The trials that he experienced served to minister to others who were going through those things. Now let me ask you a question. If you were going through trials, would you rather be counseled by Paul the Apostle or a professional behind a desk who's never gone through what you're going through? I'd rather be counseled by someone who's been crushed almost, but not in despair. Who's fallen, but he's not completely out. Because I want to say, what kept you going? How'd you get out of it? Comfort me with the comfort God has comforted you with. And so the trials of chapters 13 and 14 serve to mold Paul so that he can share with us in many of the epistles that he wrote the comfort that God has given him. In chapter 13, we're backing up a bit. In verse 49, it says, And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. Can you imagine how that made him feel? He was on an emotional, spiritual high. But the Jews stirred up devout and prominent women. And the chief men of the city raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. High one minute, opposition, and probably feeling pretty down, at least for a while. But, verse 51, they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy. What a beautiful balance. Filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And now we are entering into a part of the world called Galatia with names like Iconium, Derby, and Lystra. Just a little bit of background. Galatia was a very pagan area. There were Jewish remnants. People had migrated there and Jews had settled and built synagogues. But by and large, it was a very pagan area. And it probably was Paul's hardest mission field. Uh, you may not agree, but just read with me tonight and see if you don't agree that this is perhaps his hardest mission field ever. Later on, he writes a letter, the letter to the Galatians, people who lived in this area. And notice the tone of Galatians. It was kind of a harsh letter. Though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel than what you have received. Let him be accursed. It was with strong words because the Galatians with their background were prone to wandering off the path, off the straight and narrow. They wanted to broaden it. They didn't want to live by the gospel of grace. And so Paul had to be very hard with them. And that's indicative of the kind of people that lived there. Galatia was named after the Gauls who were a Celtic tribe, the same people that settled later on in France, who came about the 4th century B.C., invaded Rome, took it over, took over Greece. Later on, they were invited by the king of Bithynia to come over to Asia Minor and join in a civil war. They said, fine. They helped and they settled in the area until about 187, 189 B.C., when the Roman Empire again took them over, made them a providence, and now we get to this area of Galatia, and Iconium, these people that are now under uh, Roman dom domination. But uh, I read something today I wanted to share with you before we get into the text. The Gauls who settled in Asia Minor, which is now Turkey, 
at that time were blonde Orientals for the most part. And one writer says that they remind him so much of Americans. In fact, many of our forefathers came from the same roots because he quotes an ancient writer who said of these people that Paul is visiting, these people were frank, impetuous, impressible, eminently intelligent, fond of show, but extremely inconsistent and the fruit of excessive vanity. I thought, I think this guy's right. Obviously, we're related in some fashion. The first uh, place is Iconium. It says, now it happened, verse 1 of chapter 14, in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude of the Jews, of both the Jews and the Greeks, believed. This is an area in southern Turkey, famous for its wool exporting. But there's something you've got to know about these people. They were under martial law. And if you were just suspected of a crime, even though they couldn't prove it, if the government suspected you of some wrongdoing, they could kill you. And certainly they would beat you severely. And that is one of the reasons, perhaps, that they stuck it out for a while until they felt their lives were in danger and they wanted to see the gospel spread. And so they left and they went to another area. Let's read verses 1 through 7. It happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude of both the Jews and the Greeks believed. Again, an emotional and a spiritual high. They left the synagogue that day thinking, wasn't that powerful? Did you see how many people gave their lives to Jesus Christ? How do you feel when you see a lot of people even here at a service come to know Christ? You get pretty excited. I've seen it in your face. I've watched you clap. I've seen you get behind them and pray for them. Imagine how Paul and Barnabas felt in this pagan territory. And then, verse 2, But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore, they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided. Part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and they fled to Lystra and Derby, the cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding region. Now, once again, the gospel did not produce a neutral response. People were divided. Some people were into it. Other people were opposed to it. And notice that most of the opposition came from unbelieving religious people. In this case, unbelieving Jews. Now, who did Jesus have the most problems with? Did he have the most problems with prostitutes? Was it the tax collectors that hassled and hounded Jesus more than anyone else? How about the crowds? Did the common people get angry and pursue Jesus and seek to put him away? Or was it the scribes and the Pharisees? The unbelieving Jews. Or to put it in modern vernacular, religious people who don't know Christ and don't want the apple barrel to be upset. We like things our way. Don't disturb things. Don't change things. Leave it the way it is. Status quo. Let us have our little religious exercises and don't change it. 
Those are always the people that cause the most problems. The common people hurt him gladly. The prostitutes were glad to receive forgiveness. The tax collectors were tickled pink when they could be forgiven their heavenly debt. And in turn, they forgave other people the other debts. But it was these unbelievers who were very religious that stirred up other people and eventually Jesus was crucified because of it. Jesus and His disciples, followers of Christ, apostles, I believe don't really fit into most people's preconceptions. We have put too much stained glass around these kind of people. They were radicals. They were far from being your typical Sunday school smiley religious person. They were radicals. Not that they tried on purpose to divide people. Not at all. They didn't try to, hey, let's cause a sir out of this crowd. Watch, I'll say something really radical. They just spoke truth. They didn't love. But it still caused a division. And Jesus said, don't think that I've come to bring peace on earth. I've come to bring a sword. And from this day, a man will be divided against his family. Son against father. Mother against daughter. And a man's or a person's foes will be from his own family. It's just the nature of the gospel that does divide. And some of you have experienced that. Some of you have experienced that radically. Some of you, your parents, don't like where you're going to church. The fact that you're reading the Bible. The fact that you've become this crazy religious fanatic all of a sudden. You have problems with your spouses, some of you. With your children. They don't understand you. You're weird to them. The gospel has caused division. And I bet if we took a poll that most of the division and animosity doesn't come from just pagans, but from religious people in your lives. I bet it would follow suit, just like it is oftentimes that we read in the Scripture. It was divided. The unbelieving Jews poisoned the minds of these people. Now I want you to look at verse 4, because a commentator I read mentions this, John Stott. It says, the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. I bring that up because Stott in his commentary is perplexed that the term apostle is given to Paul and Barnabas especially. And uh, there are people like Stott who don't believe that the, the office or the gift of an apostle is something that carries on through history, that it died with the twelve apostles, it died with the early church, and there no, are no more apostolic gifts. Now, there's the other extreme of that. There are people who are self-proclaimed apostles today. Maybe you get mail from some of them. I certainly do. They are the new apostle of the new age or God's apostle for the 90, and they have this authoritative blanket that they try to foister and push on everybody else. But uh, there are people who... Uh, take sides with this issue and they're perplexed by verse 4 because Barnabas and Paul are called apostles. In the New Testament, let's clear this up. There are two usages of the word apostle. First of all, in the strict sense, the 12 apostles, those who were with Jesus. Now, these are the people who didn't say, you know, when I grow up, I'd like to be an apostle. These were people who were picked personally by Jesus. He chose them. Out of the disciples... He chose 12 to be with Him. And He trained them. He sent them out with other disciples, but they were a special band of men who sur were surrounded. They surrounded Jesus, and Jesus sent them out. 
But secondly, there are messengers of churches. Epaphroditus is called an apostle of the church at Philippi. And so, to make this quick, on one sense, in the strict sense, the office of apostle is passed away because there are no more 12 apostles. But in the functional sense, there still are apostles today, and I believe that is a gift that continues on. Listen to what it says in the book of Ephesians chapter 4. He gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints to do the work of the ministry. Seventy-five times in the New Testament the word apostle is used. In 19 of the 27 New Testament books. And it basically means a messenger. One who is sent out on a mission. In fact, the Living Bible translates the word apostle many times missionary. You think, well, they're taking liberties. Well, no, they're not really. The Didache, which is a document that the twelve apostles circulated and became a handbook for the church, spoke about other missionaries being called apostles. And they were received with that apostolic calling. It was Calvin, years later, after the early church, who wrote, God raised up apostles on particular occasions when required by the necessity of the times. And Calvin wrote in the Reformation period, He does it also in our own times. I believe that an apostle today is simply someone who is sent out on a mission, a missionary. He can cross cultural boundaries. He's usually a pioneer kind of a person, usually. will go out and start a work. That's how we see it in the New Testament. He's a messenger from a church carrying the good news into uncharted territories, perhaps. Church planting and the like. And it's a great calling. And whether you want to call yourself an apostle or a missionary, I don't really care. I don't think God cares. But it is a function. And I like what one person says. If God calls you to be a missionary, don't stoop to be a king. It's the greatest calling you can have to be sent out with the commission by Jesus Christ to bear the good news. If God calls you to any work, don't stoop to be a king. Don't stoop for something secular if God has called you out to do something spiritual. Let the dead bury the dead, Jesus said. But that's a calling from Him. Now look at verse uh, 5 and 6. When a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and they fled to Lystra, we'll read about that in a little bit, and Derby, or as my son calls it when we re we're reading this this week, Doiby the cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding region. Now, they probably figured if we hang around here, since the authorities in this city, if you, they suspect you of a crime, can kill you, let's just split. We planted a seed, let's get out of here. It was dangerous, but we stuck it out. But now it's so dangerous, we'll lose our life. Let's split. Look back at chapter 13. We uh, passed over it, but let's look at it again. Verse 51. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. There's a method that these guys went through. They would go to a city. They'd step foot into the city. They'd preach the gospel. If people received them, they'd keep going. If people rejected them, their life was in danger. They were shutting off the Word of God. They would perform this little ceremony. They'd shake the dust off their feet, which Jews often did going into Gentile territory. It was a way of Jesus saying, 
leave and go somewhere else. There comes a point when you stop preaching. Jesus put it this way when he sent out the twelve. Whatever town or village you enter, search for some worthy person there and stay at his house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. Shalom. If the house is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. The point Jesus is making is when you go on a mission, go on a mission with discernment. If people are not receptive, if people are hardening their hearts and turning away from the message, and your words are just falling upon stony ground, hard ground, it's not penetrated, shake the dust off your feet and go on. And concentrate on people who will be receptive. Now that doesn't mean that they're just going to go out and preach to people when it's easy. And anytime somebody says, no thanks, I don't want to, okay, bye-bye, I'll see you later. Obviously they didn't even take it to mean that, did they? Because they were killed, many of them, for sharing their faith. But what this means is that when people hear a clear testimony and they reject it forthrightly and outrightly, then it's time to quit. Jesus put it this way in another passage. Don't give what is holy to dogs. How many of you have ever been uncomfortable reading that passage? You're not admitting it, but I bet you have been. Don't give what is holy to dogs. Who's a dog? That's the big question. Or cast your pearls before pigs. Strong language. Lest they trample them under your feet, their feet, and turn and tear you to pieces. What Jesus is saying is there's different approaches for different people. Some people will be receptive and like children, you can share with them and they'll receive it and they'll turn to Christ and they'll grow. Other people are skeptical and stubborn and hard-hearted. And there comes a point when you approach them differently. Did Jesus do that? Yes. Jesus spoke with Pilate. He stood before Pilate. He shared with him about truth. Herod the Great asked to see Jesus at one point. Do you think Jesus would jump at the opportunity? Here's Herod. Hey, you could win him. Herod wants to see you. Jesus said, go tell that fox I won't be coming. Basically, that was his message. He said, no, you go tell that fox. I've got other work to do. And he wouldn't do it. He approaches different people in different ways. Listen, no one to share the gospel and no one to turn it off. And no one to just stop and leave it to the Lord. I've shared this with you before, but I think it bears repeating by way of example. I went to Israel, which is a very uh, anti-Christ nation, contrary to what some people think. But I lived on a kibbutz and I worked out on the farms planting bananas and uh, apples and so forth. And we saw people come to Christ. But there was one British fella, Tony, Tony Keene. And Tony Keene prided himself at being a rhetorician. In other words, he had a fancy mouth. And every time there was one of us Christians around, he would go out of his way to publicly berate us. I remember one time we were out plowing cotton in the fields and the Israeli army were having machine gun practice. And so in the distance he heard, and Tony would turn around and go, Armageddon! And everybody would laugh who wasn't a Christian. And he would do that to make us kind of feel ashamed of what was happening. And he would go out of his way to find anything to make Christians feel small. He was an evolutionist. 
He was an antagonist. He was an atheist. And so I went back home to the United States. I bought a book. It happens to be, it's under a different title now, but it's, it was called then Evolution, the Fossils Say No by Morrison Gish. And I went back to Israel the next month and I saw him on the kibbutz. And I was walking up and he said, Hey, Christian, what's going on? I said, well, I brought you something. I have a present for you. And I handed him the book and I didn't say another word. I turned and walked away. I shared with him before. He was antagonistic. I handed him the book. I didn't say anything. I let him read it. came to me a couple weeks later. He said, I'd like to talk. About what? I'd like to talk about the book you gave me. Anyway, what happened is he came to know Christ by going back to Cambridge talking to the professors who taught him in botany all about evolution. And he had all of these flaws in their theory that he presented to them, these scientific flaws. And he said, you know, you taught me this, but I noticed, and he went through the argument. And these evolutionists became irate at him. How dare you question us? And as they were berating him, he thought, you know, they're afraid of something. And so he did his own research scientifically, and he said, you know, this is all a big fluff. They're feeding me a line. This isn't scientifically based as much as they think it is. And he gave his life to Christ, visited me in California, called me up one day at work and said, I have given my life to Jesus Christ. But there came a point I said, I'm not going to cast these precious pearls of the gospel anymore before this swine. That's what Jesus called them. I didn't make up the word. But I gave him the book, which was where he was at. And you're going to see Paul follows the same principle here where he was at. And I left it at that, didn't say another word. He came to Christ. Not that that will always happen, but there's a time to share and there's a time to turn it off and let God work. In verse uh, 6, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derby, the cities of Lyconia, to the surrounding region, and they were preaching the gospel there. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. Now notice they didn't go into the synagogue. You know why? There was no synagogue. This is a different city than the city he had just been to. This was a very intellectual city, an extremely pagan city. They had universities of higher learning, but no synagogue, or at least not enough Jews to warrant a synagogue. And so Paul went into this territory that he was unfamiliar with. He's used to going to synagogues, and he just started preaching. He started speaking. And it says, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul observed him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed. Said with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and he walked. Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Probably I should stop and I should have given you a background in this city. There was a legend that went around this pagan city that centuries before, these two gods, Zeus and Hermes, came down in the likeness of men and walked through the streets of their city. And there were only two people who received them and welcomed them and showed them hospitality. And because the rest of the city didn't, the city was destroyed with a flood by these gods. And these two guys who received them, became two huge trees that grew on the outside of the city. That's the legend. It came to be known, or to be believed later on, that these gods, Zeus and Hermes, would one day return to this city and be 
they would be visited again by these deities and they better watch for them and receive them. So when Paul and Barnabas come strutting through town and they see a healing, they think, I remember the legend. And they elevated them to be gods. Gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in the front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes, a sign of being indignant, and ran in among the multitude, crying out, saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven, fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. One moment he's a god. The next moment he's stoned. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. Imagine going back. And the next day he departed with Barnabas and he went to Derbe. First of all, I want to refer to you back to this uh, crippled man, verses 8 through 10. You see the word speak? It says, this man, verse 9, heard Paul speaking. Paul observing him intently, seeing that he had faith to be healed. The word speak means ordinary conversation. He heard Paul in some ordinary conversation. Probably he was in the marketplace just conversing with somebody, talking about Jesus Christ, how he could change your life, how he was different from these pagan deities. He was real. He died on a cross. He lives. And this man probably overheard this simple conversation. And the Word of God that Paul was speaking produced faith in his heart. And he had faith to be healed. There's a scripture that says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The source of faith is hearing the Word of God. And this man responded to the Word of God. The crowd's response is something different. I told you about that legend. They probably thought, oh, this is one of the gods. They elevated Paul and Barnabas. Now, every time I've gone through this chapter, I thought of the temptation that Paul and Barnabas must have felt to give in to this kind of adulation. The gods have come down to us. That's quite an honor. I mean, they could say, hey, let's use this. You know, let's kind of keep these guys going a little while and then we'll take them aside and we'll just, we'll, then we'll share the gospel with them. We got them on our side. Or think of how you could manipulate this kind of a situation. Hey, Barnabas. Could take an offering right now. <laughs> Emotions running high. They think we're heroes. They think we're gods. We'll use it, of course, for God's work, but hey, 
What these people did in this city to Paul and Barnabas is not really that far removed from a tendency that people everywhere have, including some Christians. And that is to just elevate man from being a man. This person's a little bit different. He's special. It happened at the church in Corinth. Paul wrote a letter to him. He said, you know, I tried to write to you as spiritual people, but I couldn't. You're carnal. Because one of you says, I'm of Paul. Another says, I'm of Apollos. Another says, I'm of Cephas or Peter. Another says, I'm of Christ. Paul says, you're all carnal. Because you're dividing yourselves into little groups of people who esteem certain Bible teachers over other Bible teachers, and you rest in that camp, you're dividing the body of Christ. It's not that those Bible teachers are elevating themselves, but you are elevating them higher than just being a person. They were almost deifying them. Paul says, this is not good. It's a schism or a division in the body. I've looked at those characters in Corinthians before, and I've tried to imagine some of the things people would have said. First of all, people would say, I'm a Paul. I bet that's the younger group, the more contemporary crowd, because Paul had a religious background, but he kind of broke with tradition. He spoke about grace rather than law. He spoke about freedom rather than bondage. And a lot of the older folks didn't like it, but the new upcoming young people that, hey, this is great. I can relate to Paul. Then there was Apollos. Paulus was a golden-tongued orator from Alexandria, Egypt. And the intellectuals could relate to him. And the people who had a higher education says, you know, Apollos, he's really a godly man. He really shoots straight good old intellectual truth on my level. Then there was Peter, Cephas. People said, I'm of Cephas. And remember, Peter was called in the New Testament the apostle to the Jews, just like Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. And he approached the mainline traditionalists and could relate with them being Jewish himself. Though Paul was, but he went off to the Gentiles. And I bet it was the traditionalists that loved Peter. I love it when Peter preaches. It's the good old gospel. It's the way we're always used to it. It's the way we've always done it. I don't like the changes Paul is bringing in. You know, Paul had that kind of talk going around. Then there was that final group. I'm of Christ. These were more dangerous than the people who said, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. Because they were spiritual snobs. They were the elite, prideful, non-denominationalists. I don't belong to Paul. I don't believe in men's categories. I just belong to Christ. Now, I agree with that in, in its basic kernel truth. I belong to Christ too, so do all of you. But you can elevate that to a prideful position where you think nobody's as spiritual as you are because they belong to some denominational group. And yet it was causing division. My whole point in this is that there's a tendency to elevate Bible teachers, spiritual leaders as gurus or some kind of sub-gods to the greater God. I'm of MacArthur. Oh, I'm of Swindoll. Oh, I'm of Dobson. Well, I'm just of Christ. Paul says you can divide the body of Christ that way. That's a tendency we all... Hey, thou shalt not worship thy radio. Or thy television set. 
the gifted men and women that God has raised up, praise the Lord for them. But that's all they are. And here's Paul and Barnabas as they're bringing in these oxen and garments saying, wait a minute, we're men with natures just like you guys. There's no difference between us. But it, they could scarcely restrain them from doing this. Now, I want to read a scripture to you that was became Paul's kind of calling card later on in the book of 1 Thessalonians. He said, you know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted at Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. For the appeal that we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please man, but God, who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed, for God is our witness. That was his method. He didn't manipulate anything or allow himself to be raised up in the eyes of people to get money or position or power. He never manipulated people. And uh, the story goes on, and there's a message now. He preaches to the people, and he tells them... Um, in verse 16, who in bygone generations allowed nations to walk in their own way, speaking about God. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without a witness, but he did good. He gave us rain from heaven, fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Why didn't he preach from the Old Testament? There's not even a mention of that in there, is there? He's done that before, hasn't he? Why is there no mention? They're not Jews. If you would have said, no, it says in the book of Second Chronicles, they go, what animal is he talking about? They were pagans, and so Paul began, not with four spiritual laws. He began with where they were at. Their world, they were pagans. They were used to seeing the crops grow and the rainfall and the result of that. And he says, this is all attributed to God who's been good to us. And that's his approach to them, as he went where the people were. And I think that's how evangelism ought to take place. There's not a method of evangelism. And there's not one method of presenting the Word of God. Listen, there is on Friday nights a vision that we have had for a long time that's coming to fruition. It's a heavy metal church. It's a time where people get together in the community, these kids with long hair, metal bang t-shirts, and listen to music that probably most of you couldn't endure. Though some of you like, and that's fine. The point is, that's where so many people are today. That's where so many of your kids are today. That's where they're at. And to say, okay, now, <clears throat> for God to love you, you must cut your hair. You must wear wingtips, a white shirt, and a tie, and a big Bible big enough to choke any mule. <laughs> and come to my church and be bored. Instead of doing that, Hey, what kind of music? Like, oh, I like rap music. Great, we got it. You like heavy metal? Great, we got it. Give it to them, but preach the gospel in it where they're at. Now, some people are just desperately opposed to that. Well, that's worldly music. What is opera music? <laughs> Ever listen to the theme of those things? Murder, rape, incest. Most of the operas have that as a theme. Listen, God doesn't just sing in heaven I'm in 4-4 four, four beat on an organ. 
I don't think it matters. I don't think it matters. The message must never change. The method must always change. Jesus says you can't put new wine in old wineskins. Quit trying to get people satisfied who are thirsty with the same old wineskin. The Holy Spirit is always fresh. It is us who harden. And I don't care what kind of music it is. I could care less. Just so Jesus is glorified. The gospel is preached. And people come to know Him. And that's where it's at. Now, let's see if it worked. Verse 20, however, when the disciples gathered around him, uh, verse 19, the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there and having persuaded the multitude, stoned Paul. Wonderful. Dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Was he dead? We don't know. I'm not going to say no because they thought he was dead. It doesn't say he wasn't. It doesn't say he was. It could be that he was and God raised him up. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, he said, I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago. Whether he was in the body or out of the body, I don't even know. And he was speaking of himself. He says, I'll boast that it was me. And he said that he was at that time taken up into the third heaven and he saw wonders that were so great he couldn't even utter. And probably from this event of being stoned, he received a thorn in the flesh. He prayed three times and God wouldn't release him from it. But God finally said, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength will be made perfect in your weakness. But anyway, the disciples gathered around him and no doubt laid hands on him and prayed for him. And he got up. And this is the greatest part. He went back into the city. (laughs) Paul, take a hint. They don't like you. How do you stop people like that? So on fire that nothing will stop them. No threat. No attack. One time he's praised as a great preacher. The next time, you dog, get out of our city. Stone this guy. He didn't care. Because he preached not to please people, but to please God, who tests the hearts. Never use it as a cloak of greed. He had a pure heart. He said, hey, let's go back. They'll blow their minds when they see me again. They'll probably listen this time. The next day he departed uh, with Barnabas, and he went to Derby. And we'll get to that next time. Now, there's a couple things I want to close with. A couple truths here. When they shared, their message was, first of all, verbal. They spoke. They just didn't live it in front of them. Although that's important. You need to do that. In fact, they did that eventually by this healing. But it was first verbal. They verbally shared the gospel. They preached. They proclaimed. They took a step. They just didn't wait. They took a first step. By going into the city and sharing, they stayed on target. They preached Jesus and how good God was and God revealing Himself in Jesus. And then finally they demonstrated it. They healed this person. Wherever they went, they'd preach. And many times God would confirm it with signs and wonders. The signs and wonders were, number one, to confirm the message, to demonstrate these guys are sent by God. But secondly, to demonstrate God's love. To demonstrate God's love, God's care, God's compassion. Here's a pagan who heard the word. And he believed, hey, this guy's different. Maybe I can be healed. I know I can be healed if God's that powerful. And he perceived, Paul perceived, this man has faith to be healed and he was raised up. A visible demonstration of love confirmed the message. 
A Hindu poet once wrote, On the day that we see Jesus Christ living out his life in you, Christian missionaries, on that day we Hindus, Hindus will flock to your Christ as doves flock to a feeding ground. On the day we see it lived, will change. That's where I want to be at. God has committed himself to change me. I know my wife's extremely excited about that. And I'm extremely excited about that. God loves me the way I am, but he loves me too much to leave me that way. He wants to change me. And he delights in making me his instrument. Let's pray. Lord, you delight in making every one of us an instrument of God. You delight in making every one of us, in a real sense, an apostle, one who is sent out on a mission as a messenger. And Lord, you've given us a whole lot of different forums to express that in. Some of us do it full time. You've given us that opportunity. Others of us do it as a businessman or a businesswoman, a secretary, a housewife, among people in the neighborhood. But we all have been given an ambassadorship, a forum to share your truth and your love. Help us, Lord, to be faithful and to share with all of our hearts. Lord, I pray that we could demonstrate the consistent love of Christ when things are up and things are down. Even as Paul, who was determined never to quit, to go on when things were down. I pray, Lord, that you'd comfort us, any of us who might be in tribulation or trials tonight. Comfort us that we can keep going and then eventually comfort others who are going through the same thing. Lord, we are living in dark days. We all know that. What a tremendous opportunity to be light. Enable us, Lord, to stay focused upon Jesus Christ and to know nothing except Christ and Him crucified. And Father, we also pray tonight, if there's anyone in this auditorium who doesn't know You, that they would know that they're never without a valentine because You love them so much. You love the world that you gave your only son. And my prayer tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ yet as your Lord and Savior, that you tell him right now, Lord, come into my life. I make you my personal Lord and Savior. I turn my life to you. Change me. Show me how to follow and serve you. Forgive me of all of my sins. Thank you for dying for me.